0: Hey, in your program this morning is a, a, a notes form. If you'd like to take notes, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, There's a lot of uh, big thoughts in this morning's passage, and so you might want to record those. I also want to say, if you're new with us, uh, as you looked at that panel on the inside of our program, it mentions life groups for adults, and most of our life groups are in recess for the summer. But in fact, this is a great time for you if you're new, to connect with a life group because a lot of our life groups are doing things like picnics and potlucks and outings during the summer uh, in place of their normal meetings. And so really a great time to connect with a group of people and to find a group that, that fits for you. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to say thank you to Matt Sidley. He's not here this morning. I haven't seen him. I think you traumatized him last week. Um <laughs> the other way around. He traumatized you. Either way, he's not here, but I want to just say a word of thanks to him in front of you all for uh, really doing. I thought it was a great job. I listened online this week, and um, good, good, good. Thought it was great. So thank you, Matt. We're in Romans. Have you guys noticed that? And I think this is like the 23rd message, and there's going to be about twice that before we're done. Um, But I hope that uh, you've been tracking with this, and I hope that even when you're, because a lot of us are in and out during the summer, and I hope that even while, when you're gone, you might listen online to just kind of stay with us, because Paul is unfolding something here, is unfolding a logical thought in an elongated fashion, and it's kind of important that you check in and uh, and follow that line of thought, so I want to encourage you to do that and uh, let's stand now this morning and read our scripture for today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is God's Word. You may be seated. In chapters 6 and 7, Paul has been showing us that Christians continue to struggle with sin. Any of you resonate with that? Good. Some of you are honest. In chapter 6, Paul wants us to understand that persisting, in habitual, deliberate sin is inconsistent with the new people that God is creating us, recreating us to be, in Christ. You remember that that chapter 6 kind of hangs on two questions. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And shall we continue in sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? And in both, both cases, Paul said, may it never be. No way. Inconsistent with who we are. But in chapter 7, Paul in a, in a very down-to-earth, very gritty, very a gut level kind of confession acknowledges the real struggle. And he says that his new nature in Christ compels him to live a new kind of life, but that his sin nature persists in compelling him to do the very things he hates. Notice verse 15 For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. You know, and I think all of us as, as Christ followers could say that same thing. We struggle. We, we are in ruts of sin that cause us to keep doing the very things that we hate, the things that are inconsistent with who God is making us to be. But notice that even in that statement, there's a clue that, that the new nature in Christ is a reality that is emerging in Paul's life because he now feels a genuine disgust at his own sin and an inability to find any pleasure in it. He says in verse 15, I do the very things I hate. I hate them. I hate the sin in my life. I hate the ruts that I'm in. I hate the patterns of habitual sin that constantly plague me and that I keep rehearsing over and over and over again. So those two factors, the fact that persistent sin is inconsistent with who God is making us to be, and the reality that we struggle with sin prevent us from, first of all, the legalism that says real Christians don't struggle with sin anymore. And if you live long enough, you'll end, you'll end up running into somebody that says something stupid like that. And at the same time, it prevents us from the permissiveness, the license, the the lackadaisical approach to to the Christian life that says real Christians are human, just like everyone else. And so, so, see, the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our lives. If we're in Christ... The Spirit of God has taken up residence in our lives. He is transforming us from the inside out so that we desire God. We long for holiness. And yet, at the same time, our sin nature continues to be powerful. It prevents us from doing what our new desires want. And Paul concludes chapter 7 with words of praise that it is only Christ who can save us from ourselves and from the stranglehold the sin has on us. And now we come to chapter 8. What is really, I think, the, the crown jewel, the centerpiece of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. One commentator I read this week wrote that this chapter begins with instruction, it rises to consolation, and it ends with jubilation. It's just a, a great... Great chapter. I hope you'll maybe spend some time reading it this week. Well, Paul opens chapter 8 with this amazing declaration. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you say that with me? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say it again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Raise your hands and say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But you don't really believe that, do you? Really. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Paul uses some very specific language here. He could have used other language. He chose this. And when Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he is saying something very radical very powerful, very exclusive, and very final. He is saying that for those who by faith are united with Christ, not others, those who are united by faith with Christ, there is no condemnation at all. For us, it doesn't exist anymore. In Christ... Condemnation has been kicked out the door. The door has been slammed shut forever so that condemnation never has the opportunity to return. So there is not now, nor will there ever be any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why is this so important for us to grasp? it's such a radical reality that many of us have difficulty believing that it's anything but a temporary arrangement. Most of us have such a hard time believing it that we want to limit the meaning of this phrase to our past, perhaps to our present, but we're pretty sure that condemnation is just waiting in the wings And at some point in the future, God's going to lose patience with us and it's going to be all over. The hammer's going to drop. But please don't miss Paul's declaration. Don't miss his choice of words. He is saying categorically by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that condemnation no longer exists at all for a believer in Jesus Christ. See, there are are a lot of Christians who believe that if they confess their sins and repent and live a reasonably good life, they're forgiven and are, at least for that moment, not condemned. But they also believe that should they sin, they're back under condemnation until they confess and repent again. In other words, if a Christian man or woman were to sin, he or she would come again under condemnation. And what that means is that if they died in that state, they could be lost. And so they live in fear. And I just want to say that if this were true, then Christians would always be moving back and forth in and out of condemnation. fallen in and out of grace. Isn't there a song like that? "Fallen in and out of love. Falling in and out of grace. So again, don't miss. Please don't miss. The comprehensiveness, the finality, the intensity of Paul's statement. There is not condemnation. Which is another way of translating it. There is not condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment you trusted in Christ, condemnation became a thing of the past for you. So I repeat, there is not now nor will there ever be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen? Paul uses two modifying words here. The first one is therefore. Therefore. You've heard the old phrase, when you encounter the word therefore, you ask what it's there for. And it's hard to tie the therefore here in, in chapter 8, verse 1, to anything in chapter 7 with perhaps the exception of verses 24 to 25, the the last two verses. The connection is really to the entire sweep of Paul's thought thus far in this letter, especially chapters 1 to 5. For example, in chapter 1 at verse 17, what we said when we were back there 20 messages ago, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. This is kind of the theme verse of the book of Romans. In Romans three, twenty-one to 25, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a sacrificial offering by his blood to be received by faith. Chapter 5, verse 1, which is really a a counterpart to chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Justification. And then finally Romans five eighteen. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The other word is other modifying word here is now. Now. See if, if you're in Christ today, now Your present and eternal condition is that you are justified by faith. It's just as if I'd never sinned. You're at peace with God. Justification is the antithesis, the exact opposite of condemnation. And today God has, listen to this, God has nothing against you at all. God has, should I just repeat that? Because I don't think you got it. God has nothing against you at all. Nothing. You see, these are legal terms. Justification and condemnation. They have nothing to do with how you feel at any given moment. 20th century Welsh preacher D. Martin Lloyd Jones said of Romans 8:1 that most of our troubles, speaking to Christians, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. Why is that true? What happens when we forget this truth? On the one hand, we'll experience guilt. sense of condemnation, shame, the sense that there is something innately flawed about us and and there is, (laughs) but God has dealt with it in Christ, a strong sense of unworthiness, which is good, and yet he has declared us worthy and treats us as worthy. A strong sense of inadequacy, the feeling of never measuring up. You know, and and for me, when I experience that sense of inadequacy, it's really not usually when I'm comparing myself to Jesus because I know I can never meet his standard. It's usually when I'm comparing myself to some other Christian that I think is operating in a higher plane than I think I'll ever achieve. And maybe a sense of resignation, of just giving up and saying, what's the point of trying? What's the point of this? And once you're there, you're also going to have a lack of confidence in things like prayer. Why would God ever listen to me? Things like worship. What does it matter? Things like service how could God ever use a sinner like me? On the other hand, we we may also have far less motivation than to live a holy life. Why try? We may obey God, but it will only be out of fear and duty, which is not nearly as powerful a motivator as love and gratitude. Paul goes on in verse 2 then to declare that there is not only no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is also no bondage for those who are in Christ Jesus. He writes in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You ever read the Bible and go, this is really foreign language? (laughs) I don't even know what this guy's talking about. This could be one of those verses. What is the law of sin and death? Paul is referencing God's law, I think. The, the, The biblical law, the law of Moses, if you will, which occasioned sin and led to spiritual death. It is the law of sin and death. We saw last week, Paul said, you know, the law killed me. <laughs> sin deceived me and the law killed me. Because I would never have known what it meant to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. He just throws that out as one example. Anytime the law says something, it becomes an occasion for us to violate the law. And so we sin, and sin leads to spiritual death. Well, what is the law of the Spirit of life here in verse 2? And here I think he's just referring to the gospel. In, in 2 Corinthians 3.8, Paul describes the gospel as the ministry of the Spirit. It's the gospel that sets us free from the law and its condemnation. It is the message of life in the Spirit of God that sets us free from the slavery of sin that leads to death. Verse, verses three and four then tell us how the gospel liberates us from the law. And it begins with what God did. God did, first of all, he says, what the law could not do. God did what the law could not do. Now remember, it's his law. But that law was powerless to justify us, it was powerless to, powerless to make us more like Christ because of our weakness, because of our sin nature. The law of God was weakened in its power. One translation puts it, human weakness robbed it of all potency. Another renders it that the law lacked the power to make the old nature cooperate. I love that. The law lacked the power to make the old nature fall in line. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, put it this way, The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. And if we go clear back to the prophet Jeremiah and, and the announcement there in, I think, chapter 33 of the new covenant, God said, They couldn't keep my law, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And that's what he did by the Holy Spirit. So God did what the law could not do, and what was that then? First of all, Paul says God sent his own son, an expression of love. Jesus said to Nicodemus, this you see is how much God loved the world enough to give his only special son. I was reading in John 17 this week the, what some people refer to as the high priestly prayer. It's a recorded prayer, an elongated prayer of Jesus. And it struck me that there was a, there's a deep intimacy that God the Father and God the Son experienced in eternity. And that in the sending of his son, God sacrificed. God loved the world so much that he was willing to part with a portion of that intimacy. It was a sacrifice on God's part merely to send his son. Then Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And here's the word incarnation. Incarnation, the the enfleshment of Christ. Notice that Paul doesn't say that God sent his son in sinful flesh. To say that he was sent in sinful flesh would compromise his sinlessness. And nor does Paul say in the likeness of flesh which would give ground to those who say that Jesus wasn't actually flesh and blood, but only appeared to be. Instead, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Paul wrote to the Philippians that Jesus was made in human likeness. The writer of Hebrews had this to say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. John, in the beginning of his epistle, 1 John 1 is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, John said, it wasn't an apparition that we encountered. It wasn't a a hallucination. It was a real person. And we touched Him, we heard Him, we saw Him, hands-handled Him, we ate with Him, we walked with Him. See, if Christ had not taken on our nature, he could not have been one of us. He could not have represented us. He could not have represented humanity, but if he had become completely like us, that is, if he had sinned, then he could never have been our Savior. Next, Paul says that God sent his Son to be a sin offering. Atonement is the word there, atonement. Paul says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. For sin. Jesus came to die. He came to offer himself. It wasn't an afterthought. It was the plan from before the foundations of the earth. The writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And next Paul says, God condemned sin in the flesh. The word I would just throw out there is the word substitution. Jesus literally hung in there for us. He took our place. You guys remember that video we showed at Easter about Barabbas? Do you know what his name means? First of all, his first name was Jesus. And Bar means son of. Abba means the father. Jesus, the son of the father. You and I become the children of God because Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, was our substitute. Jesus, God's son, died in Barabbas' place as well. God condemned sin in the flesh. Whose sin? Mine. Whose flesh? Not mine. Whose sin? Yours. Whose flesh? Not yours the flesh of Christ. Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Well, why did God do it? Paul tells us that God sent his son, in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Wow. That's a mouthful right there. God sent his son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And the Bible refers to that as sanctification. You might use the word spiritual growth or a phrase like being conformed to the image of Christ, being made like Jesus. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but, of, but according to the spirit. See, you and I will never obey the law perfectly. Perfectly. What we do perfectly is disobedience. (laughs) It's for that reason that none of us can ever claim that we, by our obedience, have contributed anything to our salvation. There's nothing you and I have done, are doing, will ever do that will contribute to what Christ accomplished for us. It's also for that reason that we can never claim that our disobedience, listen now, we can never claim that our disobedience undermines our salvation. It's all his work from first to last. In Romans 8, or Romans 7 rather, Paul showed us that, that we can't keep the law. Because of the sin that dwells in us. In Romans 8, he wants us to understand that because of the work of Christ through the cross and the Spirit who indwells us, we are enabled to live a life that is actually pleasing to God. The late British pastor and theologian John Stott explained it this way He said, We are set free from the law as a way of acceptance. We're not accepted because of our adherence to the law, but we are obliged to keep it as a way of holiness. It is as a ground of justification that the law no longer binds us, but as a standard of conduct, the law is still binding, and we seek to fulfill it as we walk according to the Spirit. See, holiness is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement if you don't like those big words just say Christmas and the cross (laughs) verse 4 tells us that everything Christ did for us his incarnation his his suffering his death his resurrection was all in order that you and I might live holy lives now isn't that amazing amazing Even the thing that the Bible tells us that Jesus is doing now, which is always interceding for us before the Father. Always praying for us. The consuming passion of the heart of Christ is that you and I would live holy lives to make us holy, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. Now, I want to go into the deep weeds here for a moment. You say, you already have, Jim. Notice that the word requirement in verse 4 is singular, not plural. Some of you are going, oh, brother. Paul's pointing to the commandments of the moral law viewed as a whole. You might remember that, in response to a question from a Pharisee about which of the commandments in the law is the greatest, Jesus answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first the great and first commandment, and a second is like to it: You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. All the law and the prophets. In other words, if you, if you were to take all that the law says, all that the prophets wrote, the two hooks on which all of that hang are those two commandments Love the Lord your God, love all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In chapter 13 of his letter to the Romans, Paul will write, and we'll see this in a year or two. love each other. Love each other. What does your pastor tell you at the end of each service? Love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The righteous requirement of the law. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. In our lives, we don't make ourselves holy. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy. The work of the Holy Spirit within us empowers us to obey the law. The fruit of the Spirit is love. So we're not talking about perfectionism here. It's simply to say that obedience is now. As it was not before, a possible and necessary aspect of Christian discipleship. The Spirit of God is given to live within us and to enable us to live lives of holiness and obedience. There is, listen, there is no spiritual growth without obedience. Spiritual growth is not about becoming a Christian egghead, you know. Knowing knowing all the theology and knowing all the Bible verses and being able to spit them out at the right time. Christian maturity is about obedience. You run into leaders that have these fuzzy, vague concepts of of spiritual maturity. It's about, in the final analysis, obedience. So what do we do? Paul says we live according to the Spirit. Verse 4 says that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And by flesh, he's not talking about your physical body, as glorious as it may be. He's talking about your egocentric human nature. He's talking about your sin-centered self. And he's saying that for us as Christians, that selfish heart and mind doesn't call the shots anymore in our lives. And now we live according to the instruction and the promptings of the Spirit of God. Notice I said instruction and promptings. Some Christians only, you talk about the Spirit, all they can think about is promptings. But Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. Pneuma, the breath, the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gave us the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, adequate, for every good work. And then Paul says, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. How many of you know that your mindset determines the trajectory of your life? Right? Some of you believe that. Some of you can't bother to raise your hand. Your mindset determines the trajectory of your life, but Paul isn't talking here in terms of psychological self-help theory. He's not saying that you are like this because you think like this. He's saying, on the contrary, that you choose to think like this because you are like this. So if you are living according to the Spirit, you're choosing to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. If you live according to the old sin nature, you're going to be absorbed in things that that feed your ego and your physical and sensual appetites. But if you're genuinely a Christian, then you're going to be absorbed in things that feed your life in Christ, things that feed your spiritual growth. Let me just suggest a short list. One is God's Word. You're going to have a hunger for God's Word. You're you're going to want to be under the instruction of the Word. You're going to want to be reading the Bible. You're going to want to study it. You're going to want to meditate on it. You're going to reflect on it constantly. You're going to share it with others. You're going to teach it to your children. Worship. You're going to be absorbed in worship, not only individually, although That's an absolutely necessary prelude to corporate worship, but corporate worship is in view here as well, of coming together with God's people in worshiping. And part of the reason that some of us struggle with worship on Sundays is that we don't do it the other six days of the week. It's a foreign activity. But if you're in Christ, if you're living according to the Spirit, you are going to be caught up in worship because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit glorifies the Son. If you're walking according to the Spirit, you're going to desire fellowship. You're going to have a hunger to do life together with other believers because you know, as gnarly as relationships amongst Christians can be at times, that it's in those relationships that you're going to be built up in Christ. You're going to hunger for that. The Spirit of God will always move you towards community. Prayer. The Spirit of God is going to prompt prayer in your life. Conversing with God. Having an ongoing conversation. A dialogue with God. Listening as well as speaking. Sharing your faith is going to be a part of that picture. You're going to have an overflow and a desire to see other people come to know the Jesus that you know. And then finally, service, serving others. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, they're absorbed in, they're preoccupied with the things of the Spirit. We could add to that list, we could probably spend a good deal of time adding to that list. But I would say to you that those are foundational in your walk with God. And they're not the final answer because all of that culminates in obedience, doesn't it? And if it doesn't culminate in obedience, there's something went wrong in the system. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we are free to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and to live according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it penetrates our hearts and our minds, that it cuts down into the motivations and intents of our hearts, seeks us out, convicts us, redirects us. Lord, I pray for us this morning, each of us who are in the hearing of this message, that that we would come to be assured of the truth that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are absolutely free And so let us, in our freedom, Lord, live lives that are pleasing to you, knowing that uh, we won't be perfect, but that your grace covers all of our sin, now and forever. And Lord, may we grow in obedience to your word, that we would live holy lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Amen.